Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I need to thank everybody in D.C., all the great audiences that came out for our shows this weekend. Really, really a lot of fun. Thanks to all the other comics on the bill, and thanks to all you lovely people. Here, here's the thing. We live in New York City, right? So this has been the weird thing since I worked at Sirius XM. No one in the city has cars. I mean, a few people do, you know, really rich folks and people like Thea who live in Brooklyn has cars. But generally speaking, you don't run into a lot of people who listen to Sirius XM because it's very car centric culture. Now, a lot of y'all listen on the app and on demand and on your laptop like me. And I respect that. Maybe you listen through your Alexa systems. Maybe I need to say out loud in your house, Alexa, play Tell Me Everything with John Fugel saying on Sirius XM Progress at 3 a.m. this morning. And let's see if that works. But for me, like, I got to go on the road to meet people who actually have SiriusXM subscriptions sometimes. So it was so nice, as it always is, to go out and play in another town. Jesus, it's nice to play anywhere again and to meet so many of y'all. So thank you very much for coming out. And we have a lot more live dates coming up this year. The Sexy Liberal Tour will be... Oh, this is exciting. Uh, with Stephanie Miller, Hal Sparks, Frangela, myself, a lot of special guests coming up on all the shows. We are coming back to uh, Washington, D.C. on Saturday, the 10th of September. We'll also be playing shows in Chicago on Saturday, the 1st of October, and the Saban Theater in Los Angeles on Saturday, the 22nd. Three big shows. Come on down and try to get there if you can. Tickets are going fast. And it was really great to just go and try a lot of new stuff out last weekend and try a lot of new material out. So thanks to all the great audiences. Now, here's the deal. The Wall Street Journal. I want to get this out of the way. Can we can we leave Elon Musk alone, please? Can we can we be nice to this poor gentleman? Because the Wall Street Journal just reported that Elon and Sergey Brin have become frenemies. Sergey is the world's 10th richest man and Elon is the world's most rich man. Now, I know that's kind of tough if you're only the 10th richest billionaire on earth. Uh, but what makes it even worse, I guess, and more humiliating is um, the Wall Street Journal reports that Elon had a fling with Sergey's wife. Sergey Brin is the co-founder of Google. According to the report, happened last year. Her name is Nicole Shanahan, if you're an Academy voter. And uh, apparently, according to Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal, Sergey Brin was so outraged He's worth like $100 billion, and he served her with divorce papers, and she wants $1 billion. And now he's divesting all of his personal holdings and all of Elon's companies. Guys, can we leave Elon alone? Please, he's going through a lot right now, okay? 
The poor guy. He's denied it. Let's leave him alone. I mean, he's got this legal battle with Twitter because he promised to spend $44 billion to buy it, and then he completely flaked. Uh, and now they're suing him because that was a clause in the contract, and he kind of walked into that. Can we, can we go easy on the guy? He just had these allegations that he had to pay off a flight attendant on his private plane because he sexually harassed her. The poor fella. He's having a rough time. Then we just found out he secretly had twins last year with one of his top executives. I, 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 I think HR frowns on that. I'm not sure. But he's spending a lot of money on not buying Twitter, on paying off flight attendants, he gropes, allegedly, on having twins and keeping it secret. Oh, and also the guy, he's got a transgender daughter. I know he he supports these right wing pigs like DeSantis and and he's got a trans daughter Uh, and she's actually changing her last name because she wants nothing to do with her dad. And let's not forget, oh, uh, the poor guy. Just last week, we found out that Elon's dad, Errol. The guy who owns the apartheid emerald mine, Errol, uh, he, 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 how do you, how do you say this gently? I mean, on a scale of one to Ricky Martin, how do you, how do you, Errol's second wife, I think, or was it his third wife? I, I have trading cards. I'm not sure. He, Errol hooked up with his own stepdaughter. Uh, that's what people accuse Woody Allen of doing, except Sun Yi was never Woody Allen's stepdaughter. It was his girlfriend's daughter. Elon's dad married the lady raised this child, and then got her pregnant and had a child and kept it secret, and then got her pregnant again, had another child, and kept it secret. So this is just this summer alone, guys. This summer alone, Elon's on the shit list of the guy who co-founded Google for sleeping with his wife. Legal battle with Twitter over the $44 billion deal he walked away from. Apparently, he paid off a flight attendant he was inappropriate with and handsy on his private plane. He secretly had twins with one of his top executives, and now his father is also the father of his step-niece, step-grandkid. His his father's children are also his father's step-grandchildren, which means, work with me, Elon's half-nieces and nephews are also his half-grandnieces. Guys, it's complicated, so let's just go easy on him, please. Just don't say he had an affair. That could hurt his image. Now, Now, really quick, let's talk about nationalism. Because that's the word of the day. Thea, do we have these clips to roll in that I sent over? Good, because th- there's many definitions of nationalism, and there's a, always a very spirited debate how to define it. Webster says it's a sense of national consciousness, exalting one nation above all others, and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations or national groups. It's an ideology expressed by people who don't just love their country. That's patriotism. These are the people who fervently believe their country is superior to yours. You know the difference between God bless America and God bless America and fuck you. God bless America and fuck you. That's nationalism. It often encourages fears of other people, fears of other religions, other races, other ethnic groups, other types of sexuality. There's violence. There's scapegoating. It can lead to people feeling constantly at risk. It can contribute to human progress, no doubt. You should be proud of where you live. It can contribute to freedom and and economic vitality. And it can contribute to fear and conflict and violence. Christian nationalism should be an oxymoron. It's the belief that our nation is defined by Christianity. (laughs) Think back. The slavery and the decimation of the indigenous peoples and the 
shitty treatment of women for several hundred years and the the, the segregation and apartheid. But, but they say America has to be a Christian nation. I'm all for America being a Christian nation. I'd like us to start. But see, the Christian nationalists don't just say, oh, no, no, that's not just how the history has been. That's how we have to be, that we're defined by our Anglo-Protestant past and we will lose our identity. We will lose our freedom if we don't preserve our cultural inheritance. And by preserve our cultural inheritance, they mean impose it on everybody else. Christian nationalists don't necessarily reject the First Amendment. They don't necessarily advocate for theocracy. They just think Christianity should enjoy a very privileged position in the public square. Christian nationalism is, is Christianity nationalism, and they primarily focus on politics like passing laws that reflect their view of Christianity, like about abortion or not having a wall between separation of church and state. You follow where I'm going with this? Christian nationalists draw support from the Christian right. They believe our, we're meant to be a Christian nation, and they want to take back the U.S. for God. You know these people. you got relatives like this. Your uncle racist and your aunt dead inside, right? They're not just Christian. They believe that this is a Christian country founded on Christian values. They think that the government should declare the U.S. a Christian nation. We should advocate Christian values. That we should not enforce any separation of church and state. That we should allow religious symbols in all public spaces. And that our success as a nation is part of God's plan. Oh, and we have to have mandatory prayer in public schools. That's Christian nationalism. It's got nothing to do with Christ. Nothing to do with the guy their religion's named after. Who they claim is their savior. He's actually their mascot. Here's Donald Trump over the weekend. We have this one. This is Donald Trump giving during a speech where he's talking about how Americans have to kneel to God alone. This is what Christian nationalism is about. Give a listen. Do we have it? We don't have it. Well, let me move on then. Because let me know if we have Marjorie Taylor Greene, because she actually uses the language. She said we need to be the party of nationalism this weekend. She gave an interview. She was going to Charlie Kirk's uh, Turning Point USA rally where a bunch of people who uh, fight against everything Jesus talked about. See, this is the thing. You don't need to believe in the Bible. You don't need to believe in any of this to understand that these people are what um, the Bible describes as full of crap. Uh, because this character of Jesus is a peaceful, radical, nonviolent revolutionary. He never spoke out against gay people, never spoke out against abortion, never really spoke out against premarital sex. He was anti-wealth. He was anti-death penalty. He was uh, 100% um, anti-public prayer, Matthew 6, 5. He demanded individuals and nations care for the sick, care for the poor, be kind to those in prison, welcome the stranger. That's an immigration policy that would be Christian. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, we don't have the clip, but she said this weekend in an interview, we need to be the party of nationalism, and I'm a Christian, and I say it proudly, we should be Christian nationalists. And she said the party should conform to Christianity to make it easier to identify with and sway Christian voters. We got the clip. Here is Lady Blah Blah, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Just saying something, but follow friends is I believe in accountability and I believe in not just saying something, but following through on it. And I believe that Republicans need to prove to the American people that we are the party of American nationalism. What? And Christian nationalism. I'm a Christian. I have no problem saying I'm a Christian nationalist. And I think that's an identity that we need to embrace because those are the policies that serve every single American, regardless of how they vote. They could be a Democrat and a progressive, but Christian nationalist or American nationalist, America first policies still serve those people because they're the right policies for everyone.
different. Last time I heard a person. I believe in accountability (laughs) and I believe in not just saying something, but following through on it. Last time I heard someone talking about nationalism and Christian nationalism in their country, it was in German. So, you know, uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation shot back and they said, you know, she's conflating the term nationalism with patriotism. They said, loving your country is not nationalism. Nationalism is what led Europe into centuries of endless wars over imagined borders and notions of national superiority. Like the unification of state and church, this is an embarrassing misstep in European history that Americans should be proud we have learned from. Nationalism is inherently divisive and dangerous. And of course, we see this through a conservative majority U.S. Supreme Court. They always say, don't politicize religion. Don't politicize Jesus, except they're the ones doing it. We're calling them out for blasphemy. They're the ones taking stuff that the figure of Christ never said and using Jesus, using his name, using the name of his movement to pass laws that suit their politics, like allowing prayer in a public school's football field. Our founders didn't want that. Taxpayer money going to religious schools in Maine, flying of flags featuring Christian crosses on government buildings, getting rid of the separation of church and state, and of course, pretending that the Bible is against abortion. Guys, the first clause in the Bill of Rights, the Establishment Clause, that's what we've traditionally used to keep religion and government separate. You know, these guys sort of view it as like a toxic rhesus cup. You got your church in my state. You got your state in my church. Tastes great. I don't like how it tastes. Shut up. Stop oppressing me. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Lauren Boebert, not a fan of that one. Remember her speech last month? She said the church is supposed to direct the government. She's tired of this separation of church and state junk. The church is supposed to direct the... Marge, if you want a society where the the conservative religious figures direct the government and there's no abortion and no gay marriage, Iran is waiting for you. But now we see Clarence Thomas on the court saying they want to find any way they can on the court. He, it's his goal to get rid of same-sex marriage, to get rid of access to birth control. And that's not popular. I mean, there was a new morning consult poll with Politico. Uh, 58% of Americans want to codify the right to same-sex marriage. Interracial marriage? Only 15% oppose that. Um, On abortion? 47% of Americans support federal legislation protecting abortion access. Only 34% are against that. Three-quarters of voters back access to birth control. Only 15%. So, you know, that's where it's at, guys. What they're trying to do is not only unpopular, it's also unchristian. Christianity has been used to justify slavery, ethnic cleansing of Indians, war, discrimination against gay people and trans people, putting down women, enforcing apartheid and segregation in this country. But it's also been used to oppose all of those things. And so let me just close by saying, um, between 1881 and 1996 in Canada, More than 150,000 indigenous children were separated from their families and brought to residential schools. And you already know this. We've talked about it a lot. A lot of these kids were starved, beaten, sexually abused. And then in 2021, the Tekemloops to Sibwewemek Nation in Kamloops, British Columbia, found the remains of hundreds of children who attended a former residential school where they took children from Indian families and more or less stole them and put them in schools to be white. And later on, Last summer, there was a Saskatchewan community that found hundreds of more unmarked graves. And this gave a real reckoning to Canada, and the Pope heard it. And so today, the Pope visited Canada. And to everyone's surprise, he came to Indigenous territory, and he apologized. 
They believe 150,000 indigenous children went to these residential schools. Truth and Reconciliation Commission's um, report pegged the number of children who died at 3,200. Some say it's more like 4,000. And the Pope came for a week-long trip that centers around his apology for not respecting, for the church not respecting minorities, not respecting poor people, not respecting non-Christians. Humility. You know, the Christian point of view? I don't know if we're ever going to get that kind of reckoning in this country, but I will say it's going to be very awkward for all these Christian nationalist folks when Jesus comes back and he's a homeless brown-skinned liberal who speaks no English. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I'm so pleased to welcome our next guest. Before I introduce him, let me just give you the definition of the word terrorism from the Oxford English Dictionary. The unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of political aims. To me, that sounds a lot more like what happened on January 6th than insurrection or coup or riot or kerfuffle. That's why I'm so pleased to welcome Mark Fullman back to the show. He's a longtime journalist, national affairs editor for Mother Jones. Uh, since 2012, he created the first of its kind nationwide database of actual mass shootings. And he used that uh, to great effect for an incredible book he wrote that we talked about earlier in the year on the show, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. His stuff has been in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and NPR. But I wanted to have him here tonight to talk about an incredible new piece he has written for Mother Jones that really, to me, puts the hits the nail on the head more than anything I've read. Trump incited the terrorism of January 6th. Investigations further show. What a pleasure to welcome Mark Fullman back to SiriusXM. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Thank you. Um, obviously, the American public is still learning more and more about Trump's influence on the rioters from the House hearings. And you reported back in 2020 that a lot of national security experts were warning after Trump's election defeat that he was escalating his use of stochastic terrorism, uh, as you say in the piece, a method of propagandizing that stirs extremist supporters to violent action. In light of all we've read, all we've seen in these hearings, do you think terrorism is the proper term to use to describe what happened that day? I do. I think that uh, there's an, a, a distinction between um, the concept of terrorism as, as a political act and an act of violence, and then what may be required to prove it in terms of uh, legal liability, in terms of criminal prosecution. Um, 
But that said, I think that when you look at the behavior on January 6th, the, the mobs of people who stormed the Capitol and what they were motivated by and their intention, which was to obstruct a political process, in other words, to use violence to uh, intimidate and coerce politically, that is the definition of terrorism under the law. And so in that respect, I think we've seen more and more evidence that this was a, a terrorist attack that was motivated first and foremost, by former President Donald Trump. Now, the definition of stochastic terrorism, just because I, I looked it up, uh, the public demonization of a person or group resulting in the incitement of a violent act, which is statistically probable, but whose specifics cannot be predicted. You point out in the Mother Jones piece, um, after the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony, A, Trump knowingly urged armed supporters that he knew were armed to march on the Capitol. Uh, B, he reportedly raged against Secret Service agents who wouldn't let him join the mob. And C, he reportedly kind of sort of endorsed the possible hanging of his own vice president later that day. Would these, I guess, behaviors combined define him as the leader of a domestic terrorism movement? I think in concept, the answer is yes. Now, again, whether or not that's provable criminally in our criminal justice system is, is a, an entirely different question. And I think it's is a difficult and complex question. But conceptually, when you think about terrorism in the way that it's defined, um, I think we've seen more and more evidence through the process of the January 6th hearings from the, the House committee, the select bipartisan committee, and also through what the Justice Department has been doing, which is really interesting to think about vis-a-vis -vis a lot of the intense political debate and, and hand-wringing we have over what's going on there, because a lot of people are very concerned that the Justice Department under Attorney General Merrick Garland isn't acting quickly enough or may not do enough. Um, at the same time, for anyone who's followed the investigations that they have done, we've seen this growing pile of evidence of what the kind of low-level perpetrators of January 6th have done with these hundreds of prosecutions that have gone on, um, not just in terms of what they did at the Capitol and the, the offenses that they've been charged with, in a lot of cases, misdemeanor offenses, mm -hmm. but also looking at their motivations and looking at the things that they've said and done in terms of uh, Trump's rhetoric, the, the lie about election fraud that compelled so many people to go to Washington and then to act violently, to, to focus on Vice President Mike Pence as a target, um, which, as I think you just noted, you know, Trump not only knowingly sent armed supporters to the Capitol after his speech at the Ellipse on January 6th, he knew that Pence was in danger. He knew that people yeah. there were calling for Mike Pence to be killed. And then how did he respond? He tweeted harsh criticism of Mike Pence, essentially pouring fuel on the fire in, in the eyes of the, the January 6th committee. So this uh, growing evidence along those lines, I think, further supports the idea that this is intentional incitement on Trump's part, whether or not that's possible to prove in a court of law. Um, I think we see that in the evidence of, of what happened that day and how Trump acted both before and after. Well, because it looks like it's deliberate incitement, but, you know, with just enough plausible deniability. Right. I mean, that that is probably what is, in a sense, so sinister about the, the technique or the tactics of stochastic terrorism, um, because inherently it's done with 
a plausible deniability for the, the figure that is inciting it. So in other words, Trump, who I think honed this tactic very well, I, I write about this in the piece, he, he did it throughout his presidency by continually using ambiguous language, just ambiguous enough to be able to deny that he was um, calling neo-Nazis in Charlottesville some very fine people or to um, call for the liberation of state capitals when he knew that armed militias were there protesting pandemic restrictions. Um, to tell the, the Proud Boys famously to stand back and stand by mm -hmm. in, in the home stretch of the presidential election. What does that really mean? Well, when I began talking to national security experts about this in fall 2020, they were telling me, you know, the, the Proud Boys know exactly what he means, um, that, you know, you can't look at Trump's words alone and say he's telling them to go commit violence, but they're hearing it that way. And we've seen plenty of evidence of that now, particularly in hindsight, looking at all of these cases of violence that, that followed, of course, culminating with January 6th at the Capitol. Well, let me bring up one of those players who was convicted by a jury in March, um, and that would be bachelor number one, Guy Reffitt. I hope I'm saying his name right. Is it Reffitt? R-E-F-F-I-T-T. -T. He's a three percenter. Uh, fella, um, a militia member, came from Texas. He came to D.C. for the rally with uh, many guns. He was wearing heavy tactical gear. He was recording the whole thing with his helmet camera. And of course, we've seen the footage of him talking about how they're going to take the Capitol. He famously said, we're going to drag them motherfuckers out kicking and screaming. I just want to see Pelosi's head hit every fucking stair on the way out. Um, I'd like to talk about his sentencing. Because it actually, you, you, you draw a line here to terrorism and how the sentencing request is actually based on a terrorism enhancement. That's right. So the, the Justice Department has asked the court to uh, raise his sentence to 15 years in prison based on what's called a terrorism enhancement, uh, saying that his, his behavior by definition, his criminal acts that he's now been convicted of uh, require that that form of, of um, punishment. And, and that's because he knowingly and intentionally sought to coerce and intimidate and obstruct Congress for a political act of violence through, through violence. And so um, through our, our criminal justice system, this is the very definition of terrorism. And, you know, you mentioned that he not only was he outfitted with heavy, heavy weapons and tactical gear, he recorded his crime with a helmet camera. And I think that's something that, you know, perhaps we've grown used to in the story of January 6th as it's continued to unfold. Um, but let's pause for a minute and acknowledge what that means. That tells you something about how convinced all of these people were of what they were doing, that it was justified and who was telling them to do it, who was motivating them with the notion that their country was being taken away from them, that the election had been stolen through fraud, um, all of these ideas that were driving them to go to the Capitol. And, and as, as the, this person from Texas, Guy Reffitt, said, you know, we're here to take back the Congress by violence, right. through violence. Right. Um, so it really says a lot, I think, also about the culpability of the person inciting the terrorism through this, this form of stochastic terrorism, this technique. Well, and I want to mention your your book again, because the book is Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. And I love your book. We've had you on a couple times to talk about it because it is the first hopeful book for me that I've read about mass shootings in the country. And one of the things you point out in the book is that mass shooters, as we know them, don't just suddenly snap one day. 
that that those shootings are not impulsive crimes. That's a big myth about mass shootings. And it really seems like this was not an impulsive riot. There was months of planning or at least weeks of planning, maybe for some years of planning that went into this. I'd love to ask you about what the DOJ described in terms of the seditious conspiracy involving the Oath Keepers from Florida and North Carolina, the ones who were training for what they called unconventional warfare. Yeah, well, I think it's important to acknowledge that there were, I think, quite a number of people at the Capitol for January 6th who were kind of caught up in the mob mentality, kind of swept up in that and may have been acting more impulsively based on anger and political outrage. But beyond that or within that, you had a subset of people who most certainly planned crime that day, who most certainly planned to come to Washington armed, uh, ready to go after Congress to try to stop the certification of Joe Biden. And in large part, these were people who were affiliated with militias, like the Oath Keepers, like the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters. Uh, So we now have uh, multiple conspiracy cases that the Justice Department has been pursuing, including seditious conspiracy Mm -hmm. against some of these militia groups. And the evidence in these cases is is quite powerful in terms of uh, showing how, again, what they were motivated by in in terms of these lies being fed to them, and then taking that up as their cause to plan violence at the Capitol, to go and try to stop the certification of Joe Biden as president, and and being willing and saying in their own words, according to court documents and and what the government is alleging, that they were willing to commit violence uh, to help defend Donald Trump and keep him as president. Uh, that they were going there to do battle. And, you know, one thing authoritarians of all stripes have in common, they're always able to get normal guys to go fight their battles for them. The plantation owners who wanted to keep the brutality of slavery were able to get white Southerners who were poor and didn't own slaves to go fight and die for them. And I think of bin Laden all the time when I think of Donald Trump on January 6th, the mastermind of the attack who sits comfortably in his own space while the true believers frothing at the mouth, go out and commit all kinds of unspeakable acts. I mean, you've written a lot about how violent far-right extremism is fueling mass shootings in America. I, I couldn't stop seeing the parallels between the stuff you write about and what we saw on January 6th. It's, it's all preventable. It's all the same ideology. And it, it all seems like it's there in plain sight. Your book is about using tools to prevent these mass shootings. You go pretty deep in this that, you know, the hearings have shown everyone knew what they were planning. I mean, there was so much traffic on the Internet about how violent these guys wanted this thing to get. Yeah, I think we still face some very big and troubling questions about why more was not done to defend Washington, D.C. on this day, to prevent this from happening when there was, uh, you know, the intelligence streams were going crazy with this stuff. Um, you know, it's always easier to see in hindsight. And that's true with mass shootings as well, as, as I've written about a lot too, and, and in the book. Um, but I think also to your point, one of the things that I focus on with trigger points and in my writing about mass shootings and preventing them is that extremism, political and ideological extremism is a growing factor in the problem of mass violence in mass shootings. We've seen more attacks of that nature. And in some ways in studying what happened on January 6th, I think it's worth repeating that it's really a miracle that we didn't see much more bloodshed at that event, as horrible as it was, 
it, it really could have gone over an abyss quite easily. Um, there was a lot of attempt to very quickly sort of sanitize, whitewash, cover up what happened by the political right, by Fox News, by Trump and his allies, by the Republican Party, many leaders in the party to try to deny that anyone there had violent intent, uh, that they were interested in violence, that they were armed. And I, I led a big investigation to Mother Jones about how many guns were at the Capitol. That's right. And that was one of the, the big lies that followed the insurrection was, was oh, nobody was armed there. There not one gun. Well, that was complete baloney. There were, there were a lot of weapons. And of course, we've seen more and more evidence of that too with the January 6th hearings and with the Justice Department prosecutions. So in some ways, we are so incredibly lucky that we did not see more death and injury on that day, and and even the possible murder of members of Congress or the vice president. I mean, imagine what world we'd be living in now if if that had happened. And yeah. I think we were much closer to, to that than many Americans realized. I, I, yes, I shudder to think how much safer we would be if they'd gone all the way. But a couple of, you know, dead police and civilians weren't enough. Um, you talked to Juliet Kayyem, who's former assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. And she said he is promoting terrorism, but there is a reluctance to identify the kind of violence that Trump is propagating. Why is that? Why does it seem that some of our experts and some of our threat assessment professionals are a bit hesitant to come out and actually use the T word? I think it's interesting. This this reflects a, a big challenge with uh, the political experience that we had in the Trump era. Um, there's so many things about that experience that are, are difficult and complicated. But one of them, in my view, is that we run up against the limits of language to describe politics because people do throw throw around hyperbole all the time, um, making Nazi comparisons and talking about terrorism. And, you know, that kind of language was used during the Bush era. I'm sure you recall mm-hmm. uh, with with, you know, the post 9-11 years and sure. the launch of the Iraq war. Um, the problem, in a sense, became uh, when we were getting closer to that in some ways, now that people are starting to say it, there's, I think, the concern that, well, people aren't going to take that seriously. I think uh, Juliet put it quite well in, in that piece I wrote in December 2020 that, you know, it, some people may hesitate to call Trump to, to call this stochastic terrorism that what she was describing as this technique Trump was using, because that's too close to calling him quote, a terrorist and that's people right. may not take that seriously. But she also says, you know, she said at that point, it doesn't matter what you call it. This is clearly a form of terrorism. Um, again, inciting violence to create political coercion, uh, which is, you know, often what Trump was doing in effect and certainly resulted in in a lot of the language that he used. What has surprised you the most or impressed you the most, Mark, about these hearings? I, I think the committee has done a remarkable job of telling a story. Um, but in, in a certain sense, I mean, nothing about this has been easy, but I would say that that story wasn't difficult to tell in the sense that there was there's just incredible evidence that they have to work with. Um, and again, this is this is difficult when you start to think about federal prosecution of a former president. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the same, uh, if you look at the story of what happened leading up to the attack um, through the several different layers that they have unfolded the hearings, the, the witness testimony that they've been able to bring out. Um, it's just remarkable. It's been jaw dropping for people like me, political journalists who have studied this and followed it for years, who've watched everything develop 
even for someone like us who are so focused, people like us who are so focused on this, it's just been astonishing. Well, to you're, see some of if, if I may, you're you're so focused on this that the morning of January 6th, you published a piece called Trump is inciting violence over his election defeat. And um, I mean, you called it. And I, I guess the, my, my final question for our last 30 seconds is, should we expect more? Unfortunately, I think we will see more political violence. Um, it's it's really impossible to predict what and when. But as long as we're in this environment where this has gone on with relative impunity for a long time, and where you know Trump and those who support him are still a major political force in American politics, uh, I think the danger is still there, and and we will see more ideologically and extremist driven violence. What a pleasure. I'm so grateful we could get you back. I love this piece so much. Everyone's got to read it in Mother Jones. Mark Fullman is uh, the national affairs editor for Mother Jones. His essential book is Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Sir, how can our listeners follow you and keep up with your work? I'm most active on Twitter at Mark Fullman. That's the easiest place to find me. Uh, And Mother Jones, my byline is there regularly. And you can find Trigger Points at your favorite bookseller just by Googling Trigger Points. It's a great read. And again, it's the only book I've read about mass shootings that did leave me hopeful. Mark Fullman, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for all you do. We've got to take a very quick break. We'll be right back for a full hour of your calls with comedian Rhonda Hansom. We're at 866-997-GRIT. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Doug in North Carolina, thank you for your patience. Uh, It's always a pleasure, John. And I I love your last guest, Mark, over there. Um, Mark Fullman, yeah, really good author. His book on gun violence is great. Anyway, I'll make this real real quick, sorry. I've had a couple of beers since I was on hold. But right on. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I, I always what I like about the January sixth thing is like you know the times when Fox will broadcast it and when they don't broadcast it, and after you know after you know shows, I, I go to like Fox and all these other right wing sites and how they like just ignore it and they always bring up you know Hunter. Yeah, yeah it, always. It's sort of like how the hell does this thing turn out, Hunter? And I started realizing, it's like, I'm 62 years old, and, you know, not the oldest guy in the world, but I just remember this stuff, it's sort of like, this is their typical playbook. Yes. I remember, like, I remember like when Jimmy Carter uh, got in office, and and they went after Billy Carter right away. He was this country bumpkin drunk. Sure. You know, had his own beer and all that. Well, and let's when, not forget Bill Clinton had a brother, too. 
Oh yeah, yeah. That's you know Roger Clinton. You know and they were saying he was a coke addict and a, and a horrible entertainer. And they kind of briefly went after <laughs> Chelsea. You know with uh, Rush Limbaugh saying she was did, the yeah. Yeah. White House dog. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, I remember a couple times uh, Sean Hannity had on like Obama's half brother yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And he never really got the half brother to say anything really bad about. It. But boy, he was just asking like this is like really leading questions. The kind of like you know, come on, come on, you know, give me something out of this thing. And now we have Hunter Biden. Well, look, I mean, I don't mind the scrutiny as long as it's consistent, right? I mean, you know, Donald Trump's kids, uh, they were indicted. They were investigated for charity fraud, and the three of them have been banned from running charities in the state of New York, along with their dad. They actually had to take a course, Ivanka, Eric, and Don, about uh, how to not defraud people through a charity. So, like, you know, I look, Joe Biden has created nine million jobs. He got unemployment down to three point six percent. He ended a 20 year long war. He signed a trillion dollar infrastructure law, signed a two trillion dollar rescue plan. First major gun law in three decades. So with that many accomplishments, you better expect to hear a lot about Hunter Biden. Right. I mean, God, when we get the August jobs, when we get the August economic report and find out inflation is shrunk, you're going to hear more about Hunter Biden. It's it's ridiculous. And it's, you know, I just remember when people started bringing up about Bristol Palin, you know, the so-called like, you know. Hey, I'm for chastity and all that. Even I get pregnant all the time. No, it wasn't because she got right. pregnant. No, is it with her? I mean, no one was really worried about her, but she was taking 15 grand a speech to preach the virtues of chastity, even though yeah. she'd had one out of wedlock child and then had another one after her public but, speaking. Yeah, career. but their side was like saying, "Oh no, 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 hands off, hands off." You know, you can't talk about her. That's how how dare you do that? You know, you're well, I, I, look, I think when you put yourself out in public. You put yourself out in public. Now, Chelsea Clinton, Amy Carter, the Bush twins, they didn't do that. But if you were, and and as far as Hunter Biden goes, I'll tell you what I tell everyone who who asks me about that. I say, I support investigating the business dealings of the children of all presidents. Do you? Because (laughs) Jared Kushner helped a prince get away with murder and Trump helped him do it. So I say, go ahead, investigate Hunter Biden all you want. And now let's find out how many patents China gave Ivanka. Yeah. And that prince said that, you know, they had Jared in his pocket there. Yeah. It's sort of like, uh, what? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Jared Kushner helped Prince Mohammed bin Salman escape any kind of accountability for murdering and dismembering and chopping up a U.S. resident journalist. And then the prince gave Jared $2 billion for his venture capitalism fund against the advice of his own, when, when your own people who help you cover up murder (laughs) <laughs> like oh no murdering and, and journalists fox, that's you know, that's just doing business but don't give money to jared kushner prince no and, and now fox goes after biden for going over saying oh he's kissing the you know the ass of the prince he's you know kissing his ring and everything so you know help us out of this gas crisis and yeah. it's like are you serious are you, and, you know, it's like, do you think, you know, I, I'm sure. Are you surprised by the hypocrisy? Look, I mean, and, and again, no, not. again, Joe, let's be fair. Joe Biden, as a candidate, promised he would make MBS a pariah. That was before inflation and these gas prices. And of course, that was, you know, before Donald Trump asked them to produce less oil, which has, of course, driven the price up. And I'd rather see Joe Biden talking about that than going over there and groveling before MBS. But look, he represents the American people. He was trying to get the gas prices down. I get why he did it. Yep, I agree. He's going to own anyway. the, he's going to own the capitulation. But I think he did it because he cares about the people. Thank you so much, Doug. My pleasure. 
We'll be right back. This is Progress. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. You know whose work I enjoy? Lawrence in Texas. Hi, Lawrence. We got to keep it tight tonight. What's on your mind? You're on with Rhonda. All right, my brother. All right, sister. Hey, got to keep it tight. Got to keep it tight. So go ahead and hit me with your point. Tight, tight, tight. All right. Here's the point. As a black man, I'm coming from a black perspective. Ronald Reagan opened the doors for five million illegals to get amnesty. And ever since then, we've been on a slippery slope. Why did Ronald Reagan do this? He benefited. He did this to benefit the growers, the corporate America who wanted cheap labor. Yeah. And this is where I'm coming from. Okay. The border could be sealed overnight if it wasn't for corporate America love for cheap labor. We're, we're, you, you have my agreement completely. Ronald Reagan also did it because he thought it was humane that people who've been here for many years, you know, obeying the law, should have citizenship. They've raised children here. Okay. They've had they've built businesses here. Okay. So he we believed in citizenship. Yeah. I can agree with you. I can agree with you on that. Okay. That was a valid point. But when you get hundreds of thousands of people coming across the southern border, and I live in Texas, and I see the effect up close and personal, and you got Democrats who saying, as a black man, I should worry about them and not my black community. When is the black agenda going to be dealt with? What, we deal I'm with sorry, what Democrats, are tell, what Democrats have told you to worry about illegal immigrants and not the black community? Please, can you give me oh, names? show ain't long enough for that, but I'll give you, know, you a How about up. one? Give me one name of a Democrat who's told you to look out for illegal immigrants, but not worry about the black community. I'm curious. Who was that Democrat? Hell, I go this, the buzz. Uh, 1230, the buzz out of Cincinnati, Ohio. You got black people on there who tell me that I just hate Mexicans because I'm against the illegal. Right. I'm asking, about, I'm asking you to back up your claim. First off, I don't like the term Corey illegals. Booker, I don't like, I don't like the term Booker, illegals. because I'll say the Congressional Black Caucus. Okay. The Congressional Black Caucus is head over heels. I know you have a love affair with the Congressional Black Caucus, but no one in the Congressional Black Caucus has ever told you to love illegals and not care about black folks. Well, you know what I'm saying. You, you, no, you, no, you, no, you, no, I don't. And by the way, il- illegals, illegals, now, now you, now you, maybe, now maybe now we move away from that term. Maybe we move away from the word illegals, right? Because it's kind of mean... Otherizing uh, less than point. human, less than human, right? Yeah, go on. Lawrence, Lawrence. Uh-oh. Lawrence, yeah. I hear you because the congressional... Hang on, hang on. The queen, the queen, you got the queen involved. Rhonda, go ahead. 
Lawrence, I hear you because the Congressional Biscuit Caucus has always, always put everyone else in front of the Black agenda. I know, I know exactly what you're saying. And if you go to their website, they don't even mention that they're Black anymore. <laughs> I think I it's in the name. I think I it's implied. That's just me. So, they wouldn't let me join. Here's so. the point, John. Yes, sir. Here's the, here's point. The, the point is here. Go. The black America really don't have nobody speaking out for our best interest, not our elected officials, not law enforcement, not Sleepy Joe, none of this. And as a black man who's been voting ritualistically ever since I could vote and participating, I'm pissed off, man. I don't want to go over there and help you. You vote for Republicans, what? but you but have voted for you voted for you voted for Mitt Romney, Lawrence. What are you talking about? You voted no, for I, Romney. No, I didn't vote for Mitt Romney. I you took sh- his hand and whispered in his ear at the Mitt Romney breakfast. Okay. I <laughs> voted for Trump over Biden. And everybody well, you that voted I know that supported tr- Biden, they say they wouldn't vote for the dog again if he ran for so, if he was I running against up. Trump, if he was running against Trump, come on, Lawrence, come on. Listen, hey, here's man, the one thing I'll something. say to the y'all about. Don't get a wake up call. I Black know. America don't hate Trump like y'all hate him. Uh, here you, hate here, him. Here's the thing, Lawrence. Ready? Any politician who talks about illegal immigration or tries to get you angry about illegals, but they don't talk about the white people doing all the hiring, that person's oh, lying you to know, you. I agree with you. Okay. I agree with you. So so let's these people are trying to seek a better life. And if you and I were in Mexico or Central America and wanted to feed our kids, we would take the risk, too. OK, I don't go after no, those I people. I fight to change my government. OK, I good luck with the cartels, Lawrence. Good luck with the cartels. No, I'm, no so, I'm sorry, well. but these people from Central America are fleeing the violence of our drug war, Lawrence. They're fleeing our violence. Yeah. John, if you go along with that ideal, then all the black people who suffer lynching and Jim Crow and slavery. We should all choose emancipation. No, we all packed up and left that's this not country. what I'm saying. What, what I'm saying is what I'm saying is I have empathy for all marginalized peoples. I don't support breaking the law. But the reason there are undocumented immigrants here is because white people want to exploit their labor, either treat them like humans or lock up the white people so they don't come anymore. But it's supply and demand. But John, Here's I got to run. You give me, give me the point really so quick. Much. Okay, I know we do. We agree on we agree on so damn much. Why don't we be? Why aren't we able to sit down and break bread and come to a resolution on the things that we agree on? Because you get I suckered by guys like Donald Trump. Employer. You voted for well, Donald Trump after he told thirty thousand you know lies. Because you don't like I Joe Biden. Donald Trump because my enemy's enemy is my friend. Yeah, that's how, by the way, my enemy's enemy is my friend is how we wound up getting Saddam Hussein. Rhonda, I'll give you the last word. Lawrence, let's go with locking up the white people. Okay, uh, I'll go with that. Let's go with that. <laughs> Lawrence, I got to run, but I thank you. It's great. Uh, a quick break. Oh, I love that man. I want to just I want to just bottle his energy and, and rage. And, He's got enthusiasm. <laughs> oh, I would huff his rage out of a paper bag behind a gas station. We've got to take a break. This is progress. Progress.